This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Budget and Tax News Podcast. I'm S.T. Karnick, a senior fellow and director of publications at the Heartland Institute. Cities across the United States are in a persistent financial crisis because their governments are unable to define who and what they are. Policy analyst and book author Mark Moses joins Budget and Tax News to discuss this problem. Mark spent two decades working directly for municipal agencies in senior-level finance and administrative management positions, before that in small business consulting and banking. He's a former member of the Government Finance Officers Association and has been an active member of the California Society of Municipal Finance Officers for more than 25 years. Mark is the author of the new book, The Municipal Financial Crisis, a framework for understanding and fixing government budgeting. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan Cham. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Okay, uh, your book says that cities across the country are in a, quote, persistent financial crisis, end quote. Uh, I think that is probably fairly evident to most people who are following uh, this, and uh, we'll, we'll get into some of these problems as we go along, I'm sure. But in fact, you say many cities are going bankrupt, or they're stuck in what you call financial chaos. Uh, How widespread is this problem, and what kind of money are we talking about here? Well, I think if if you know where to look, the problem is very widespread. Uh, One thing I learned over my career is that cities have an incredible ability to kick the can down the road, avoid insolvency, but that comes at the expense of, say, local services as they deteriorate or the local infrastructure as it deteriorates. So I don't define financial success as simply avoiding bankruptcy or avoiding insolvency. If you're not maintaining the roads or you're not providing the services of police and fire the way you should, then that is a financial crisis if you're not doing that because of money. Sounds true. Um, Now, But it's no surprise that governments like to overspend. And so I think that uh, we really need to get into that. Politicians get rewarded for spending other people's money. So what are cities spending money on that is causing these dire financial shortfalls? Yeah, the the way I look at it, it, it is a spending problem. But the source of that spending problem is our cities have the wrong goals. They take on, in effect... If you look at the way, sometimes this is explicit in their mission statements, sometimes it's a little more implicit, but they really take on an unbound scope of activity. In other words, everything's fair game. And I call out in the book a few cities that are blatant about this, where they say their mission is to maximize local services. Well, what does that mean to maximize local services if your only source of revenue is extracting resources from the local economy. It means you're going to maximize taxes and and local fees, right? So I I don't disagree that some of it is bad incentives and some of it is 
using the leverage of what the city can do to get votes. But I think at the core of it and what really em empowers it and allows it to go on unchecked is that we've really accepted that it's not a it, it's not a common question to say, wait a minute, is this in our scope? Is this in our proper scope of activity? Should we be doing this? In 30 years, I only heard an elected official ask that question twice, where where they were this pushback, you know, should we be doing this? Is, is this within our proper scope? And I think that should be the first question that all council members ask before they take on something new. And so what's happened is, you know, maybe in the 70s, cities had a few departments. Now it's it's common for cities to have 10 or 12 departments as they just layer on activity after activity. And then that crowds out private sector solutions. Because when cities get into, pro into trouble with their municipal utilities or where they've crowded out philanthropic activities by taking over programs like homelessness, then you don't get a private sector solution because it's all been crowded out or or monopolized by local government. So it's the wrong goals of of government that is really at the root of it from my perspective. So you say that the cities uh, have a tendency to want to expand uh, continuously what they uh, will do for their constituents, so to speak. Um, how then would you suggest that people should, uh, and, and in particular city governments, should measure what is their proper role? Uh, we can think of things uh, that, that actually are not being done very well by very many cities, such as crime control and water and sewers and things like that, uh, some of which actually could be done by the private sector, the, the latter especially, uh, roads, bridges, things like that. Um, how do you, how should cities be deciding these things? Yeah. Where do they stop uh, adding uh, services and expenses? Right. It goes back to what a city government really is. It's it's the local legislative body and enforce and carrying enforcement powers for the local jurisdiction, and we've lost track of. Wait, that's good for some things. That's good for protecting rights. That's good for defining property rights. That's good for handling certain types of local legal disputes. But it's not so good for commercial activities. It's not so good for philanthropic activities. And that really doesn't serve the residents. And what happens, and the perspective I try to bring out is when you, the city cultures are are such that once you get this goal of we're going to maximize local services because that's our job, it that's, uh, that sounds from a certain point of view that that's serving the residents. But what happens is the, the culture becomes, oh, we just have to do as much. We just have to take on everything. And there's a disconnect with the residents because you, you forget that the purpose of the local government is to serve the residents and it becomes kind of a self-serving bureaucracy of this ongoing expansion of services. Because when a budget manager sits down to prepare a budget, he or she just starts with their tax revenues. And it's taken as a given like it fell out of the sky. There's, there's no perspective of, wait a minute, 
this comes from the residents, out of the local economy. It's not just out of the sky money. This this has an impact on residents. And so you can't keep feeding that with more and more and and not have financial problems. And one one of my, part of my perspective is the the problem isn't that taxes are too high. The problem is with these goals, taxes will always have to go higher, which is what you see, right? And if you look at any government uh, city government fiscal sustainability plan uh, at the top of the list is raise revenues find new revenues well where are you going to find those revenues once you're a city government you're only going to find those through mandatory fees or or higher taxes which is basically what we have and 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 that is another example of what saves cities from insolvency Sometimes they've got constituencies that will vote yes on new taxes serially. They will, and some of it, they just feel like their backs are against the wall. It's like, do we vote for this tax or do we just allow more potholes? Or do we vote for this tax or do we allow them to cut police and fire services that they've monopolized? And so once you're in that kind of position, again, I, I define that as part of the f- fiscal crisis, is that if you're backing your constituents against the wall with those kind of choices, uh, where they're just doomed to have serial tax increases, then you're, you're not managing properly. And, and I'll just say part of the thesis of my book is that it's impossible to manage or, administ- or, or budget for an amorphous organization. And that's what our cities have become. They decide what they are from council meeting to council meeting. It's all accepted that you can just live in flux. And and it's euphemized as, well, we're flexible. You know, we're versatile. No, you're not versatile. You're not committing. Again, you're not going back to your basics of of what you are as an agency and what how that differentiates you from commercial activities or or voluntary other voluntary activities philanthropic activities and if you don't respect that you you have a lot of problems and and I see it with council members that they they come in and they really want to improve things but they come in with tricks they learned from other industries and they think that that works in government and no that doesn't work with your legislative body and and it just it's not effective and it's it's really counterproductive to the, your residents. I think that an interesting element of your argument to me is the uh, purpose of government. Uh, we, uh, to me, the purpose of government is just to do uh, two things. One is to protect our rights from one another and also from government itself. And two is to do public works. Now, uh, it seems to me that the, the cities, what they do is, and what's creating the problem, is they expanded the idea of what a public work is uh, to absurd proportions. Uh, so what are, what are some of the things that city governments have expanded uh, way beyond what we would ordinarily consider to be valid public works? Well, I think just allowing, it's as you implied there, Public works is a bit of a fuzzy concept because if public works is just anything delivered to the public, then you, you, you again you're unbounded, and so and and you've got calls out there for 
for cities to establish get into banking, you know, lending and and all these things. They're like, well, is that a public work because it it involves the public? So I think it's a very dangerous concept because it is murky and it 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 starts to get you away from what a legislative authority empowered with enforcement powers can can reasonably do in service to the residents. And so, so that starts to flip it again to that the city is this provider of services, and and I think we really see this on the uh, with the monopoly utilities now. And I go through this in the book where the let, let's just say you set up a a water utility, and the premise is well we can't entrust this to commercial activities because they'll get in. They'll they'll monopolize. They'll squeeze out the ratepayers, and and they'll let their services deteriorate. And they they won't be concerned with the local environment because they're probably owned by somebody outside. But we'll control it locally, and that will solve that problem. Well, look at the state of a lot of water agencies now. They have deteriorated infrastructure. They they. They make one or two mistakes. Sometimes they go crazy with rate increases because they like to fund a lot of projects that wind up being somewhat self-indulgent in terms of in, engineers like to tear things apart and rebuild them. And so sometimes you get that. Sometimes you get political pressure to keep rates down, and then they're not realistic about what it takes to really maintain the infrastructure, and the infrastructure deteriorates. And... On another point, a lot of local agencies are not as good as commercial agencies at complying with environmental rules because they know that the regulatory agencies kind of take pity on some of the local agencies, and so they don't find them as high. They don't see them as as the deep pockets as they do commercial enterprises. And so you have compliance issues at the local level in terms of environmental uh, respect for the, the local area. So all my point is all these problems that justified including some of these monopoly utilities as as city run or municipally run utilities, all the problems it was meant to forestall, it's now taken on. And I, I worked for a utility that I had a 10 year projection that showed they did not need to increase rates that they could do all the maintenance they needed to do, that they they had ramped up rates in the past and that the rates were were fine for at least another few years before they had to even be really seriously reviewed. And they the board could not pass up the opportunity to raise the rates. And, and they made up all these things, they made up just totally arbitrarily that, well, something could happen and we might need the money or if we increase the rates now, then it'll mean f- lesser increases in the future. And it was totally off point from what our financial projections were showing. And, and again, this organization was not compromising on maintenance. It was maintaining its sewer lines and uh, its sewer facility at a fairly high standard. And so the the point is, that was supposedly the reason that it was taken over locally, because if it was commercially owned, it, uh, there would have been crazy rate increases for no reason and it would have been out of control. But what happens is when 
when it's taken over as a municipal utility, there's no private sector solution. Whereas you can ultimately, maybe it takes a little time and maybe there are some problems, but you can replace a commercial solution because you haven't banned competition. And so I'm very cautious about the way things slip in as under this public works description when it doesn't really relate to the legislative authority and enforcement powers that really are, are what make the organization different from commercial activities and poised to do, again, some things well and some things not so well. Econo economists have a concept, uh, which I would call a truth, uh, called public choice theory, which is the idea that uh, government actors have uh, incentives of their own that are, uh, let's say, not completely pure and objective, and that they are that they are moved to make choices based on what they perceive to be their self-interest as actors. Now, uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is when you have a market situation, the market disciplines you and make sure that you uh, are uh, are moving the the uh, resources around and using them in the right places uh, to the right degree. Uh, when government has that, people tend to think that the government is objective and fair and, and unselfish, but in reality, government actors are human beings just like anybody else, and they have these uh, incentives, oftentimes oft those incentives being to aggrandize their own efforts. Uh, how do you see that as fitting into this uh, problem? I, I see that, those kind of dynamics more on the periphery. I I think chasing that down and and trying to solve the problem through changing incentives or managing incentives. Uh, again, my perspective is that that's commonly blamed, right? Yeah, you have the wrong incentives or the wrong incentive structures. You've got the wrong people or you've got the wrong systems. But to me, that's a bit of a trap because that's a, a second or third level going on here. What's really going on is cities have the wrong goals. And those goals want, are also backed by some bad assumptions and some bad methods that if you don't change those fundamentally, then you're, you're, you're not going to make much progress tweaking things on the margin. And that's where you're going to be is on the margin. What, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I was really frustrated just watching the frustration of city council members who were just doing the same things over and over in the name of, well, this will help solve our financial problems. And I, I call some of these out in the book where, you know, they think that, well, we'll fine tune our budgeting mess, uh, methods and we'll, we'll get more sensitive ways of measuring things so that we'll be able to budget better or, you know, more community outreach or more uh, transparency. And, and these things are all good. I have nothing against transparency, but sometimes that can be a trap because the way, if you don't change the goals, if you keep things status quo and you give a local government a charge of transparency, well, they'll buy some software and they'll put out their financial data in raw form out there 
and and then it'll be I call it a feather in their transparency cap. They'll be able to check a box and say, yeah, that's what we did. But if you don't change the underlying goals and this underlying premise that the role of that organization is to basically do as much as it can, then you're not really addressing the fundamental problem. And you really have to understand the way cities see themselves. And it's apparent in their goals. Cities, city governments see themselves as the city. I mean, they've, in other words, they've already taken over. And, and we're not just talking about lines of jurisdiction for the purpose of legislation or for the purpose of policing powers. We're talking about we're taking over everything, right? They're, they're responsible for the culture, the art, the, the education. They're, they're, and, and then even like I saw, just saw one city where they talk about creating, their, part of their vision is creating a community that's flourishing. And, and wait, it's like, wait, from my point of view, the individual residents and business owners are the ones that create the community. The, the local government is there to protect it and provide a framework where they can associate freely and trade freely. And so it's a backwards, it winds up being flipped where, and, and that's why there's this alienation of the residents where they feel like they're not connected to the government because the local agency sees itself as an end in itself and forgets that it should be the means to the ends of the residents and business owners not not as an end in itself. And just one other example of this that's so blatant. If you ask a local government, local government officials, like how how's the local economy doing? How would you characterize the state of the local economy? They look at their tax revenues. So they're only their barometer for how well, their measure for how well the local economy is doing is how much they're extracting from the local economy. Well, that's really perverse in terms of, no, the, the local economy and its ability to flourish is, is best supported by mostly being out of the way uh, and also protecting that trade and person's property. And, and, and so you, you see how it all gets flipped when, when the goals are, are the wrong goals and where the culture of the local government becomes we're the end, we're going to save ourselves as an end in itself. And then look what happens, right? The residents and business owners become a means to that ends. And that's where you get the serial tax increases or, or you cut services to keep the city organization running in, in the status quo mode. It seems that with the, the city government sort of defining itself as the city, that these incursions against the public really would uh, uh, undermine their their um, their attachment to the city over time, and kind of I think would push out productive people. Yeah, and and everyone really knows deep down what's going on at a certain level. They they may be at a loss to articulate it, and that's what I'm trying to really raise the level of conversation about that, but. You know, like with community outreach, that's another one that, well, we'll just invite more people to the party. But it's like, but the party is based on the wrong premise, right? And so 
again, that becomes another box to check. Yes, we went out and we held these community sessions and we got feedback or we did a survey, but the survey itself was all based on smuggling in some of these assumptions about the the role, the expanded role of the local organization. So I, I really want to bring the discussion to back to the purpose of the local agency. And there can be debates about where the, to draw the line on some things or how to unravel some things that have gotten so deeply embedded, because that, that's why this is so insidious. When when you take over so much and you're the authority, and so you you either outlaw because you've taken over as a monopoly certain commercial activities, or you crowd out. I mean, there are a lot of anecdotal stories about how some of the public agencies' homeless initiatives have crowded out philanthropic uh, approaches that are much better motivated, much better, much more innovative, and and when they don't work, they can gracefully exit. The problem with a city program is when it doesn't work, there's no graceful exit. You wind up throwing more money at it, doubling down, throwing people at it, because you're you've set yourself up for failure by taking something over that you're not really well equipped to do. Is so the, the conversation has to go back to these kind of things. Right. Is the Los Angeles mayor's uh, declaration of a homeless emergency, uh, which, which is really uh, meant to be, uh, give the, the city government the power pretty much to do anything regarding housing uh, in within the city limits. Is that an example of the kind of, overreach that you're talking about? Yeah. Maybe an extreme example, I hope. Yeah, I, I, I think it absolutely is. And, you know, the way I understand it, and I'm not an expert on homelessness, but I'm sure there's a mental health component to it. And also some of it, I think, is a is a misguided goal. There, there's some people out there, and I saw this firsthand, where people that were taken off the street, they were housed. As soon as they could, they were back on the street. They mm -hmm. were, you've got a certain type of person out there that is just as a lifestyle. They've, they've chosen this and they don't like, they consider it being cooped up to be housed. And so they're back on the street. And so that's, you know, using the local organization to try to chase those people down is is just simply ineffective. And then right. what invariably happens with the homeless services is the well part of it is a problem of managing public land, right? You like if if homeless are camped on somebody's private land, there's there's a way to deal with it. But once they camp out on public land, you and, and this, again, this is the problem with this land that kind of everybody owns, but mm -hmm. nobody owns, and, <laughs> and now you got to fight in the courts about what can be done and what can't. Then you 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 basically created a mess by by assuming responsibility for land that you can't effectively manage, and so and, and cities. It's another issue cities have trouble with is they 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 take on land ownership, they take on asset ownership, and and. Not only do they not maintain it well, but they don't even know sometimes how much they have. They don't even have good inventories of what they have. And in terms of maintenance, I've worked in a couple city halls that 
if they were commercial, commercially owned, they never would have been permitted. They never would have been allowed. They they never would have been signed off on for occupation with the condition of the buildings and the and the ceilings. And it, it, in one organization, actually in both, if if you wanted a good office environment, you wanted to be in one of the overflow facilities that was leased from a private company, <laughs> you didn't want to be in city hall because of the way it was maintained. So, so yeah, when I hear people come in and, and some of it, I get it's people pay a lot in taxes and they, and then they decide they want to get their money's worth and they know where city hall is. So they come to city hall to complain about these things and they lose sight of, well, wait, is, is City Hall really equipped to deal with these things? I mean, and I think City Hall needs to be able to say no, that this is beyond our scope and we need to support other kinds of solutions that are really better situated. And this homelessness is just a full circle of, you know, yeah, there's issues of, to the extent that it's related to mental health, but then there are also issues to the extent that it maybe is related to housing affordability. Well, who's the biggest culprit in <laughs> in housing ill affordability? You know, it's the it's the zoning laws. Right. It's the and those types of things and, and the one size fits all way of just saying, okay, this is a residential area. This is a commercial area. This is an industrial area. And then you also have some perverse incentives. And, and here's where, it, and this is why I don't deny that incentives play some role. I just don't think changing them is going to uh, be the full solution. But sometimes you have incentives against housing because if you invite a retail operation in, it will provide more money to the city. This is back to that. The city's perspective is the economy is doing better when the city revenues are going up. And so, and and uh, and housing is a liability, right? Because well, now we have to provide police services and these and fire services, and we don't get as much money per square foot as if we invite in a commercial building. And, and so, the you've got to you wind up with this cycle, and then everyone's working at cross purposes, right? economic development departments trying to bring in new businesses aggressively but but just think about that that distorts the economy if they're adding if they're providing tax incentives or other incentives to bring businesses in before the market's really ready well that's really not fair to the proprietors who are there and who wouldn't have to deal with artificially stimulated competition before the market really was ready for it and so you've got economic development trying to add more commercial. You've got a housing department, which doesn't create any housing, just chases housing grants and then winds up providing loan subsidies. And then that winds up being a, literally a lottery because there's so few available affordable housing uh, units that you literally have to run a lottery. And so then the winners get subsidized quote below market housing but you still have everybody else out there and and it's all because you've distorted the market through the way you zone through the way you overlay all kinds of additional requirements on developers and so and and because you become defensive after a while about wait a minute we can't have more people we we can't even support 
you know, whether it's the water utility or the or police or fire, we can't even support the people we have. So it's really, and that's what's so insidious about this is in the short term, there often are no good solutions because of the way the city's boxed everybody in legislatively. That's really interesting because uh, a resident doesn't bring in that much money to a city and they, and they require services, uh, whereas a, a big business uh, can be perceived, at least, as potentially bringing in a whole lot of money. So uh, I think that that's, that's a really important point. And also you have the city set, restrict actually the amount of building and housing through regulation that you can have. And that distorts the market as well in a, in a very bad oh. way, creating the kind of problems that the city then says, well, we have to fix that. So this all plays into why they why these cities find the traditional budgeting process to be so frustrating and inadequate, as you say. So how do they uh, kind of try and negotiate their way through that or manage their way through that? Well, in, in terms of improving and getting right. unraveling some of this? Well, first you have to recognize it's hard. When you've been operating for decades on either an explicit or implicit goal of maximizing local services, maximizing your reach, then you've crowded out so many private solutions and alternatives and and, you, and people have become dependent on you. You can't just all of a sudden say, okay, this was wrong. We just, you know, we'll step away. (laughs) And so you've you've (laughs) got to prioritize. And like in zoning, you know, you you can't just completely close your your zoning and permitting department in one day because that leaves open that it takes time for other solutions to kind of come into play in terms of how you define property rights and what you can and can't do next door to somebody. And so the zoning is basically a one-size-fits-all that's preemptively designed, <coughs> excuse me, to, uh, well, in the name of, well, we're going to preclude these kinds of conflicts or problems because we're going to put all the housing in one area or put all the commercial in one area and that will solve it. And then, you know, they wake up one day and it's like, well, that's really no good. We like mixed use. Mixed use is the new thing because we want walkability. And it's okay to have a corner bodega and, you know, that's walkable and services these people. And they're starting to understand it's okay to have maybe smaller units. I mean, part of the problem with with affordable housing is if, if you're a developer and you have a vision of, I want to make my name with affordable housing. And yeah, it's going to be smaller and it's going to cater to maybe singles who who don't want to live with five roommates. Uh, and it's going to be a 900 square foot you know, little mini. Uh, and these things can be designed very well and very livable if they're designed properly. You can't even do it, right? You can't even bring that kind of plan to most cities. And so the it, it really has to you know, start with loosening up those things so that those kind of solutions can come in and weaning your way off of the really the central planning mentality, which is, oh, we can just make these rules that will preempt any conflicts and and then that will be that. And 
all they do is create conflicts for themselves internally in terms of the way they review plans. And, and it, and then from the outside, it really looks arbitrary. It's like, well, you gave them permission to do that, but you're not giving me and, and why. And, and these zoning laws are notorious for not being reviewed very often. So you're basically living with, instead of the adaptable private industry and dynamics of the way people really live and operate, you're locked into a plan that was probably conceived decades ago and, and then takes decades to change because of the way you have to hold the conversations and and address the issues, even to make incremental changes that that bring you more into the practicality of the way things are. Again, rather than let the market adapt to these things, which because the market's very good at taking these signals and uh, and and providing what needs to be provided. Well, that's an interesting point because one thing that happens is when the when the city discovers, oh, we we uh, we should have more bodegas. Then what they do is they require people to put put a bodega. In yeah, their, then you have a in bodega in their corner, right? <laughs> Whereas if people want bodegas and you let them decide, let the market decide what to build and what to uh, what not to build, um, then they get the amount of bodegas that they want. Yeah, uh, and, but the city d- wants to decide that and say, "Okay, now we'll do this." Yeah, and it it really you know. So now, when you centralize all these things, then everything relies on what somebody decided at the city. Where, whereas you know, developers make mistakes. They may make a bad call. They may think an area is up and coming that really isn't, or that takes longer than they thought. But then that the that developer absorbs that not not the city winds up absorbing these things and the cities get excited and they want to build their own housing so they can control it and now they're in the business of being landlords and and we know how well the cities do when they're landlords of their own city halls and so you you kind of get two extremes right you get i mean walk into a city hall and i've walked into hundreds over my years and they're either like look like they're about to crumble or or they're brand new and shiny because they finally crumbled and so they went out for bonds and and just built a new building and so it's brand new but I'll tell you the mentality when those things are brand new is that well now we don't have to maintain it we don't, we you know we don't have to fix the roof anymore we don't have to maintain this we don't have to maintain that uh we just got rid of all our maintenance problems because the mentality is not to keep the building in in decent shape so it has value into the future because the the city doesn't have that kind of perspective on its assets whereas if you're a landlord and you have a building that you rent out you, you know you're you're not milking it for 30 years and then you're going to walk away you're you're looking at long term because whether you keep it long term or pass it on to relatives long term or or sell it at a certain point the money it gets is going to be a function of uh, to a degree of how well you maintain it. So you've got that perspective that that cities simply do not have on the assets they hold. Right. Politicians uh, have a tendency to leave it to the next person to have to clean up the mess. Now, there are some have been some mayors in the past who have, have tried to deal with some of the, this on the fundamental level. I think of uh, Steve Goldsmith who was the mayor of Indianapolis in the early 2000s, um, his 
premise was to move some of these things, uh, such as water and sewers, to the private sector. Um, is that a direction that cities need to go and that, and that is really the fundamental way to improve their budgeting processes? Yeah, I think, well, certainly divesting themselves of the commercial activities they've taken on and, and often monopolized is, should be a, a mid to long-term goal, depending on how entrenched the activity is. And I, I'm not really in favor of, okay, we decided we shouldn't do this anymore. Uh, we're going to get out of the water business or wastewater business. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll take bids or, you know, for the next 30 days. And I, I'm not, a, cause that, that's too much like a fire sale that basically is a, is a boom to the first person to walk in the door with a good proposal. But when you've crowded out the market for so long, I don't think you get dynamic proposals for those kind of takeovers and, and you end up with a, with a good result. I think these things have to be nurtured a little bit over a bit over time where you're again, you're not just going to get a local vendor taking over uh, at a fire sale. You're going to get, a real competitive kind of process to to take these things over, but I, I think those are those things do take time. What what I am cautious of is calling it privatization when the municipality still keeps control over everything, and so you you see this sometimes with the utility contracts, say for uh, water operations or wastewater operations, where the city says, you know. Employing these people is a headache. The we we know we're not doing very well. We know commercial activities in the long run are are more efficient. So let's contract all this out. Well, a couple things happen there, and then and this the or why I'm cautious because it 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 appears to be a move in the right direction, but the way these are often constructed, sometimes they are kind of local crony contracts because they're again they haven't nurtured the environment to really get a lot of good bids so it winds up being you know one or two bids and and I think you can do much better than that if you plan it out and then cities have a way of wanting to control everything right so first of all if you're the contractor taking over you know, well, we can't leave our people out, so you're going to be compelled to hire all these city people and take them over. And then we we don't want dramatic changes in their benefits, so you're going to have to promise to – and we don't want to upset the MOU and, and change their schedule that they're used to. So you see what I mean? You're, all of this management discretion that the, that the city has bargained away is now going to be pushed onto you. And then we also – you know, want you to buy green when you, you know, when you buy and, and we want you to do, you know, we want you to have this type of demographic in, in your hiring and these kind of, and all of a sudden we, we basically overlaid the purchasing policies of the city, the hiring policy of the city onto you as the contractor. So you're just mimicking the city's way of doing business. Right. And so then the city is still responsible for all this. It doesn't change the responsibility. And I'm not convinced that the city is any better at managing these large contracts 
as it is managing staff directly. And so if it doesn't work or, or if it's perceived as not working, it's the privatization that gets the blame, not the way the city orchestrated this so-called privatization. I, I call it privatization in name only because it really isn't privatization. It's just contracting out a subset of city monopolized services. It's still a monopoly utility. You as the contractor can't be challenged. You're not you – know, there's this theoretical competition because in, in 20 years when the contract is up – there, there could theoretically be a replacement, but realistically, who's going to be eyeballing that? And you know, you're in such a confined thing because you've already adapted to the city's way of doing business, and so now you create a high, th a higher than otherwise normal threshold for what it would take to enter the market and and challenge the the service provider, and and again, who gets blamed to the extent that it doesn't go wrong? And then everybody's like, I told you so. We never should have let this go. We should have kept it in-house. And the pendulum swings back, and then it's back in-house. What you're describing sounds a little bit like Boris Yeltsin's Russia, where <laughs> after communism, uh, the idea was, well, we'll privatize these things. And, and it ended up just being in the hands of oligarchs because the, 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 the government and the society, the people of the Soviet Union – especially Russia, didn't have any concept of how to, how to do these things. Exactly, exactly. That's, and, that, and that indicates that we are pretty bad off in our cities if we're having the same uh, problem as the, the Soviet Union transition to Russia. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a fair comparison, uh, definitely. And uh, so that's why this is going to take time to unravel, but you have to have the right conversation to unravel it. You can't. This can't be just tweaking the budget methodology on the margins or, or holding more public meetings. It has to be really doing an inventory of, of what you do and, and how that really relates to your, your legislative and enforcement powers and authority. And so – and really, again, starting to nurture – and that's why I think some of these things need to be phased out, not just stop. Like, I mean, recreation is a good example. Cities just decide that they're the recreation providers and they basically elbow out or marginalize nonprofit organizations that may appear on the periphery but are very dedicated to fostering these programs. And so – the, the city winds up being the provider of uh, – major provider of recreation. Well, and when but, it isn't providing it, it, it it's uh, providing money to these organizations and skewing their, uh, their goals and missions. It, exactly, exactly that because then the city decides, well, what kind of program you can run. And again, rather than let the kind of the market of nonprofits gravitate to how competitive uh, – uh, an association they want to run in terms of their sport versus being a little more recreational, you know, rather than let those decisions basically be driven by the interest of the community as expressed through the nonprofits, it becomes a city decision. And so, yeah, they're either capturing nonprofits and telling them what's needed and what to do, or on the other hand, they're they're underpricing their services 
because if they charge right. what they really cost, because again, providing recreation through a city environment and the way you have to purchase, I went through this in my career with recreation directors who they just wanted to do business. They just wanted to hire people. They just wanted to do things and you couldn't really blame them because they they wanted to operate efficiently. And I'm like, well, no, you got to put this out for bid because that's the city policy on purchasing. And you you have to get three bids. You can't do e- even narrowly things. You know, so all of a sudden they feel like their hands are tied and your cost of doing business just goes up, up, up. And so when you tally that up, you can't really charge what it's costing you. So then you have to subsidize it. And most of these public agency recreation departments are subsidized to the tune of at least a third or so uh, is is subsidy. But that even understates the subsidy because these employees in the recreation department get their public pensions and public retiree benefits. So they also contribute to the unfunded liability. So and that's not even accounted for right in the one third subsidy. That's just to keep the things alive year to year. So, you know, maybe 10% of a given city's retiree liabilities, and I'm talking about pension and, and retiree medical, is tied up in, in its recreation department. So even if, you, even if you divested yourself of recreation and, and let the no, local nonprofits do it, you know, say you give notice, five years from now, we're out of this business, we're going to phase this out. Uh, so... And and maybe you do provide some funding initially to bridge that gap and then say after five years, you're on your own, we're out of this. You still have the unfunded liability for all these employees that, that were providing services over the last decades. So this is a obviously a very long-term problem. But let's uh, – I'd like you to kind of pin down what um, a scenario would look like if a city were to go from the way they work today – to what your vision is, uh, where cities are defining themselves properly. So what is that definition, once again? And how would you get from point A to point, it's probably point L or Z. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you have to recognize that, that this is not A to B. And if you conceptualize it as A to B, you're going to be very disappointed because, and you're going to wind up reverting back because you're, you're, you're not going with a long, a sufficiently long-term commitment to really get way out there to to where the the goal is. Again, we're talking about unraveling problems that took decades to create. They're not going to go away just through one quick uh, one or two quick moves. So yes, you need to itemize all the activities of the city. You need to look at how those relate to the core city powers. Uh, what are they doing that truly is legislative that protects rights that defines rights in the local jurisdiction and and protects people in the local jurisdiction. You have to look at where the city has gone astray in terms of commercial activity, uh, ventures into owning, whether it's commercial buildings or residential buildings, all the things that it's taken over. And you have to prioritize. You have to say, well, where's our where, where's the biggest problem? Is it is it the zoning that we need to really focus on and start unbundling that? Is it a municipal utility that we we've proven to not be able to handle well 
And no, we can't get out of it next year or even the year after, but we need to have a goal of of being out of the business in five years or 10 years and allow the solution to develop. And and through those kind of mechanisms, and, and what kind of things have we overlaid that are just extraneous activities? I mean, my, my pet peeve is in the purchasing side, because I've overseen purchasing, and the city has this idea that it's going to, quote, set an example for the public, which is, again, this is that city-centered, <laughs> city is an in-and-itself perspective that only a city can really have. Like, everybody's watching where you buy your light bulbs or what kind of fleet you buy, and so you're going to set this, or what kind of recyclable paper you buy, and so everyone's there's this fantasy that everyone's looking at that and they're looking at the city to set a good example. And so what you wind up doing is undercutting and constricting the your ability to purchase because now you've got you're not looking at purchasing for value. You're looking at purchasing for looking good and sometimes it's a virtue signaling kind to of create a culture good. out there. Exactly, exactly. And so that undercuts the the mission, the core mission of the city, because now it's all about doing these things as if you're on display that, again, run counter to the actual function of, that you're trying to fulfill. And so I say those are easy to strip away because you just you just strip them away and and you stop this fantasy that everyone's looking at you using you as a model i mean deciding what kind of car to purchase or what kind of light bulbs to install is de- has a lot of de- dependent factors and it's not a one size fits all and and so trying to pretending that you're going to set yourself as an example by buying x type of light bulb or or certain kind of fleet vehicle is and often in the face of, well, these are more expensive, but but it looks good, uh, or this is the new trend, instead of waiting for the economics to make sense, just venturing off in these areas is totally counterproductive. So I think there are a lot of easy wins in terms of things that cities are doing that would would not compromise services, would just would simplify things and and get them so that that you can identify your core because part of what's happened is cities have become so confused because they have layer upon layer of new things and they'll adopt codes that they know they can't enforce, but it just looks good to adopt the code. I mean, you know, we're going to ban plastic forks and, but we know we can't really enforce that, but, but we have to be out there, you know, with a ban on the books. And so you've got, and then you create confusion for code enforcement are we really looking at these things or are, are these things just kind of these gray areas that we look past, but it was really there for symbolism? You know, there's so much nonsense that's layered in. If you've got to strip that away before you can even identify what's, what's really happening. Cities well, have confused themselves. Right. Well, let's say you're the, the mayor, the incoming mayor of a, a major city. And you, you, somehow you've gotten elected uh, saying, I'm going to right-size the city and we're going to make the city government operate efficiently and spend your taxes well. It's conceivable 
that that could happen. But uh, then after one term, uh, it would be uh, you'd be gone. Um, So city, you know, cities are under the authority of their states. So is there a way that we could get states to step in and 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 acknowledge these cities are uh, the city particular city is a mess. It's poorly managed. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what you have to do uh, in order to retain your, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, retain your uh, uh, status as a city in this state. Well, first of all, I wouldn't characterize it as right-sizing. Right. I I think that's a... (laughs) That's a result you want, but what what it really is 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 right scoping. Mm-hmm. So it's not size per se; it's it's scope. It's what range of activity you decide is appropriate for the city organization. And as far as what the states can do, this this issue kind of varies from state to state because the state I spent most of my time in, California, the state exacerbated the problem right. because the state pushed down mandates into cities. The state has rules that say, you've got to do this, and you can adopt something more restrictive, but you can't adopt something less restrictive. Right. And so so pushing down, so that there you've got one state with a certain kind of mindset, pushing down certain kinds of priorities and certain kind of mandates that make it extremely difficult for cities to, to contend with, because they... Uh, they're really boxed in when they're uh, when when they're constrained in the way cities are in California. They can't get the right scope. E- exactly. I mean, the because the the state won't allow because their own chartering organization, the state that gave them their charter, is basically legislated a scope that that goes against the grain of what you can do viably and effectively as a legislative authority. And so, and that's why there's such a spectacle going on in California with zoning because you got this YIMBY versus NIMBY kind of thing going on where you've got people that are saying, hey, these restrictions are killing us. They're not good. And then you've got people that for various motivations are, are happy with the status quo. They're, they're happy to live with some of the side effects of, of the zoning because it means that they won't have to worry about the landscape changing. And so it's it's very contentious. And and this is why I say there are not a lot of easy short-term solutions, because you haven't allowed the market to really define these property rights. You've you've basically overlaid it through zoning. So and then you've got other states that that I think perceive the problem as a spending problem. And that you can, if you just restrict spending or just restrict revenues, then that will, I guess, make the city, help the cities, lead them into being better managed. But I don't think that works either because as much as you can say that it's a spending problem, fundamentally, it's a scoping problem. And and think about it this way. You can legislate all this stuff from the state in terms of trying to legislate fiscal prudence, but if you... If they're still operating with goals of maximize local services, I mean, a lot of these cities have full-time city attorneys who who see their jobs as you know working around laws to justify what the city councils want to do, 
And so, and I've seen city attorneys make some pretty blatant kind of pronouncements in terms of of what's in the proper authority of the city just to justify what the what the city manager or city council wanted to do anyway. And so it's not like you have a local Supreme Court saying, no, 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 this is beyond your scope. Go back and you know settle down. Uh, you've got the local attorney, city attorney working to expand the scope of the city and find their find the city's way around these kind of mandates if they're mandates to restrict uh, the uh, spending. So it's a I think the only way things really, really change is, the, the community has to have a, a perspective, a better perspective on the city and kind of take back the, wait a minute, you're, you're a means, you're an agency that's a means to our ends as residents and business owners. We're not a means to your ends. And if you don't get that kind of cultural shift where it's really okay to talk about the role of local government and the proper scope, then... Again, you can make some progress on the margins, but the deck has been stacked against those conversations because the what's happened is the you 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 go from year to year assuming that that your scope is proper. And so the the city's just and this has to do with the methods and and the way the current budget methodology just reinforces the status quo because by the time you sit down to prepare the budget, you can't really make any substantive changes. You can't really have these conversations about whether, you know, how many years you should hang on to the municipal utility that's failing uh, and and phase it out or, or at what point you can phase out recreation. You're not having those conversations. You're having conversations that are after all this has been committed to, it's too late to change it because your perspective is only the upcoming budget year. So you basically smuggled in a methodology that reinforces the goals. People are rationally ignorant of all the things that, uh, of all the things that their city is doing. So they really don't, I, I really don't know how they would, uh, in practical terms, tell the city, uh, you should be doing uh, this much and not that much. Um, because they don't know what the city's doing. But what they do know is that they, uh, uh, you know, there's crime all over. The, the, the streets are just absolute, you know, they're rubble. And, you know, you can't, you can barely drive on them. In some cities, you don't have streetlights being replaced or they don't have them in the first place when they built neighborhoods. So they see that these conditions are awful and they just emigrate. Is that really the only power that the taxpayers have? Well, again, this is a tough one. I don't pretend this is a, I mean, in some ways the solution is simple, but it's not easy. And and the, again, the reason it's not easy is because the whole premise of the way the cities are operating now are, you know, again, under these goals of we're providing, we're maximizing services. The implicit assumption is we can do it better uh, and we can do all these commercial and philanthropic things through our legislative authority, which again, we're you see evidence all the time that that doesn't work. But but then the but the way of doing business simply reinforces this. This is why council members 
who come on, on on a platform of reigning in spending often fail because they here's what happens they'll come on again under a platform of hey we got to rein this in there's you know, we're we're spending so much we're on this path of serial tax increases we we got to we got to contain this and then what will happen is and I get it. They're, they know something's wrong, and, and they're correct. There is something wrong, but they're not able to really attack the fundamental goals. And so what winds up happening is they vote no on everything. Then they're marginalized. You're just a naysayer. You're an impediment to progress. All you do is vote no. You don't even say why. You know, what's your positive vision? And and so here's where and what I try to do in the book is – is present a positive vision, a vision of, hey, let's tap into the commercial sector. Let's tap into the philanthropic sector. Let's not have a city government organization that's an end in itself and loses touch with the residents. Let's have a city organization that exists for the residents and protects their ability to trade and, and flourish and gives them the, and doesn't assume that they don't know what they're doing and they can't resolve conflicts that we don't need this kind of overreach we can we can contain it and so but you have to get that vision out there positively or or you just get wine you just wind up being marginalized as a naysayer and so i'm trying to give a voice to people on the outside who and it's understandable that they don't see these dynamics because from from outside the organization it's difficult to pierce an organization, a city organization, and and really see how these decisions are being made. So I'm trying to provide a voice to that. So because there are a lot of people that are frustrated with the level of service, and they're going to get more frustrated as the level of service goes down, they're going to be looking for answers. Some people are already on top of it. They already see the trends, and they've been following this longer. But so I, I'm I'm trying to create something that helps them become more effective so that they're addressing the right things when they do uh, elect new council members or decide to run for a council uh, or or come to a, a meeting because that that's the only way it's going to change. You've got to you've got to change these expectations and and the perspective on on what that what the local agency is. Oftentimes, reformers will come in and 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 they'll run on the issue of corruption. Uh, is how is how does corruption uh, play into this process of uh, cities growing too big? Is it a result? Is it also partly uh, a uh, a means of uh, that growth? I I think I think it's a minor issue. I don't deny that it's out there, but I also don't believe that that chasing it all down is is really addressing the fundamental issue for the for the reasons we've discussed that you can you can do that and and you should do that you should when when there's blatant self-dealing and when there's just blatant abuse but but think of what empowers that abuse what empowers that abuse is the scope of government so if you've got you know let, let's just say it's between a developer and a council member who wants some favors related to zoning. Well, it's because of the zoning laws to begin with that there's anything, you know, for the peddler to peddle in terms of 
favors and and this type of thing. So I say you're going to minimize the corruption. You're going to have, rather than chasing it all down, kind of like the whack-a-mole model, there you'll you'll do better in the long run if your goal is to squeeze out corruption by reducing the scope of the agency to, again, what it really should be doing, ought to be doing based on its, its true legislative and enforcement role. And that all these ancillary things, I mean, I've seen it where in, in purchasing, where purchasing becomes a political thing of where are you going to buy this or where are you going to buy that and buy it locally and buy it from this vendor. And then that becomes, you know, a, a, a potential issue of corruption. But it's like, well, if you're buying so much as a, as a local agency to open up that kind of thing, then you probably are buying too much and you're involved in too many activities. And it's that proliferation of scope that set you up for that. So as, so yeah, so my bottom line answer is, yeah, you want to minimize corruption or address corruption, then address the scope of local government, because that's that's what fosters that, empowers that to begin with. And then and then get the right goals, because, again, without the right goals, if you've got an open ended scope, then you're you're a magnet for people that may want to use the city authority. And by the way, this can be nonprofits or for-profits or anybody out there who's got the ear of a council member or help get them elected. Um, the public agency unions have become you know, that kind of factor where you you can't make improvements to your to the way you deliver services because everything's codified in the labor agreements that the council members, are backed into a corner and have to uh, uh, approve because the labor unions are the ones who either got them into office or sustain them in office. Right. Ch chasing waste, fraud, and abuse is a really good way of grandstanding. But if you want less corruption, your government should do less. That's a great way to, yeah. And, and, and less, not just in the sense of, of, right. of size, <laughs> but but in the sense of, of scope. Right. Uh, so uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for our listeners, you know, a sort of a summary or anything of, of that sort? Well, I would like to put out there that people can contact me through my website. Um, it's munifinanceguy.com. That's muni is in municipal, financeguy.com. Uh, my book, The Municipal Financial Crisis, is available on Amazon and if you don't like Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, basically all the online booksellers uh, carry it. And I'm really trying to get the word out about the book. One of the challenges I have in marketing the book is that nobody's expecting a book like this because books like this that are written by people with decades of firsthand local government experience are rare. And the ones that do come out I think are just trying to salvage the the misguided goals and misguided assumptions that sustain the status quo and and preclude better solutions. And so I'm really trying to get the word out uh, so that I can help people who are interested in local government policy but frustrated by the the results they've been getting. <laughs> 
Right. Your book is called The Municipal Financial Crisis, and it's by Mark Moses. And I would uh, encourage our listeners to uh, go to their favorite uh, online bookseller or go to their local bookstore if such a thing still exists and ask for the book so that the the bookstore will know that this is out there and that people are interested in it. That's a good uh, point. Yeah. Ask your bookstore and ask your library. That would yes, be Yes, right. Thank yeah. you for mentioning that. Um, how do our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, I'm uh, on Twitter. I'm at Muni Finance Guy. And uh, you can also uh, find me on LinkedIn through my name, Mark Moses. Uh, let's see. Those are, the, those are the main two media, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, that I post to. Good. Thank you. Um, our guest today was policy analyst and author Mark Moses. Mark, thank you. And thank you uh, to our listeners for joining the podcast. Please leave a five-star review at whatever platform you're using to listen to this. Uh, This is S.T. Karnick for the Heartland Institute's Budget and Tax News Podcast. 